So we're continuing along the lines of what we did last week. I'm taking a break on the Kingdom of God series, which I'll be getting back to uh, at least by the time the Wright State students come back. I kind of hate to have them miss a lot of that. but um, And uh, what I've been doing is... Uh, taking some uh, things that we've covered in the Search the Scripture series, because there's only three or four people who come on Sunday mornings who also come on Thursday night. There's not that much overlap. I see three right now. Uh, Edwin sometimes comes. He's sick. Oh, Sam sometimes comes. But uh, Beth and the Haggers are the consistent ones. They come most almost all the Thursday nights. So this might be a repeat for them. But what I actually decided to do was cover a little bit of a biography slash life lessons from the first two authors of the New Testament. And uh, I want to make no secret about the fact that Matthew and John Mark are my two favorite characters by far of the New Testament because of the life lessons that their life carries. Forgot to turn off my phone. So, um, unfortunately, for sake of time, I'm going to just skip the great introduction that I worked about two hours on, <laughs> and uh, I hope you'll uh, I'll hope you'll read through the notes and give it some thought. Uh, it would be well worth it. it. Some of it reviews last week's message, and uh, I'm just going to jump right into the fact that because of the way God wrote Scripture, He didn't just use the authors as secretaries. Uh, the doctrine of the plenary inspiration or plenary infallibility, some, some people differentiate slightly between inerrancy and infallibility, but that doctrine does not necessitate uh, that God dictated it like you would a secretary. Rather, it's more complex than that and, and gives more glory to God that we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God. God took sinful men born of Adam and birth them into a certain place and time, a certain culture, a certain set of historical events. He gave them a certain personality and a certain family and raised them in certain circumstances, circumstances and called them into his service and so worked through them that eventually he sanctified them enough that some of their writings were, are the infallible word of God. And that is amazing if you really think study the doctrine of thereof. And if you combine that with the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, every person who has Jesus Christ in their spirit and every person who's been born again of the Spirit of God knows that Scripture is inerrant and is infallible. There, the Holy Spirit bears witness to your spirit that, that God is true and every man is a liar. So uh, with that, um, that makes all the writers of Scripture themselves worthy of study and worthy of understanding some important life lessons in terms of the ways of God. When you talk about the ways of God, you're looking at how does God work uh, in such a way that he can sanctify a people group or individuals uh, to be used of his purpose. That's It's an amazing process, and you want to study the characters of the Bible, like Joseph or David, and, and see how God worked in their lives and so we're, we looked, last week we looked at Matthew, this week we're going to look at Mark, and that's all the introduction I can give us. Mark is obviously the second author of the book. He's called John in a couple verses, and he's called John Mark elsewhere. And uh, that comes from, unlike uh, Matthew and Levi, Matthew and Levi, uh, last week we studied Matthew, who was called Levi before he came to Christ. Often in biblical things, God gives someone a new name when they come to Christ. But in John Mark's case, 
Uh, one is his Hebrew name. One of his is his Greek name, but it's it's kind of like people. There's you, we've known people who have a first name and a last name that you might call by either one or or a middle name that they they might use and that sort of thing. Like um, so. You know, he is both John at times in the New Testament, he's John Mark at times, and he's Mark, but it's the same character. And uh, so what I'm going to do is actually, uh, often in literature, uh, of course, God does this in what we declared in the eternal decree when we did chapter 3, I think it was, of the Kingdom of God series. I'm going to tell you the where we're going today. I'm going to tell you the conclusion before we get started on the story. God does that. He declares the end from the beginning. Literature, lots of times, or uh, a good mystery might start with, like in Columbo, he uh, did kind of a thing that had never been done before in mysteries where he allowed you to see the guy get murdered, and you knew exactly who did it from the beginning, but you didn't know what clues Columbo was going to use to bust them. And so uh, we kind of know the end from the beginning. In this case, I want you to know two things about, uh, or a couple things about John Mark, two crucial facts. Uh, first is he's the writer of Peter's gospel. So when you read the gospel of Mark, one thing you need to know is it was written in about 65 AD. Nero came to power in 56 AD. His, his empire-wide, or 54 AD, I think, and uh, his empire-wide uh, persecution of the Christians started in 64 AD, and sometime between his uh, that 64 AD and 68 AD, when uh, when Nero died, who was the last of what was called the five Julio-Claudian Claudian emperors from the lineage of Augustus and Caesar, and the Flavian dynasty uh, took over. Uh, in 68 AD, who, uh, of course, um, Vespasian was was uh, the, the first of the Flavians, and his two sons ruled after him, the most famous of which was Titus, who was the general who destroyed Jerusalem and conquered the Jews from in their rebellion from 67 AD, or 68 AD to, to 70 AD. And there's actually still, to this day, an arch in Rome that most people visit. There's, uh, I think it was Respighi wrote a number of... of uh, symphonic pieces about the Arch of Titus, and the Arch of Titus was built to commemorate Titus's uh, great victory over the Jewish uprising uh, in, from 68 to 70 AD, and his destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the tearing down of the temple, as Jesus had predicted in Matthew 24 and Mark 14. I forget the chapter it's in in Luke, but it's called the, the uh, Mount Olivet Discourse. And Jesus had predicted that not one stone would be left upon another, and all this would happen within a generation's time, and so forth. So Nero is uh, is the emperor just before the uh, just before the that all happens. And during that 64 to 68 uh, AD period, both Paul and Peter were martyred, and they knew for a couple of years before their death that they were going to die. And so Peter. Uh, had been asked many, many Christians, uh, church history records in a number of ways, that many, many Christians had been asking Peter to write a gospel equivalent to Matthew's uh, gospel, Luke's gospel, and so forth. And so uh, Peter actually commissioned John Mark to do so. In other words, he asked John Mark to do so when he was in prison, and and John Mark uh, 
was there in Rome with, not in prison, but with Peter, visiting Peter and Paul in their imprisonment regularly, uh, Peter asked John Mark to write a gospel for him. So that's the first thing you need to know. Uh, not only is he called John Mark, but he writes. He, he writes in it when you're reading. When you're reading Mark, you you need to understand that Mark was an eyewitness of some of the events. His mother was uh, was a follower of Christ. If, as you know, read in the Gospels, that there were many women who traveled with the disciples and and, and uh, contributed out out of their private sources, and some of the women. Were, would tend to be with the disciples when they were in the southern part of Israel called Judea. That's where John Mark's mother lived. She lived in Jerusalem. It's at her house that the prayer meeting in Acts 12 happens um, that you read about, and probably the prayer meeting that you read about in Acts uh, five that I, 4 and 5 that I like to talk about a lot. Uh, that, that prayer meeting... Um, that prayer meeting uh, was probably at John Mark's mother's house. She was an affluent woman with a big house and a lot. The early Christians didn't have church buildings. They tended to meet at the people in the community's house who had the biggest houses to meet in. The first fact I want you to understand is that um, Mark is writing the gospel on Peter's behalf. Now, the second thing I want you to learn about Mark is that he is a fallen leader. John Mark uh, denied Christ, as we'll see, see when we go through his life. His life is chronicled. There's a lot about his life in the pages of, of the New Testament. But there were two significant periods of, uh, two significant times over approximately a 15-year period that John Mark, under the, under the threat of persecution and, and uh, opposition, chickened out and left the mission, so to speak. And in New Testament thinking, to deny Christ in the face of opposition or persecution was considered the most serious sin you could commit. You know, we don't live in a culture where you might get beheaded if you start passing out tracts or telling someone about Jesus. We live in a culture that maybe you'll get made fun of a little, or maybe you'll get ostracized, or maybe your parents won't be too pleased with you're going forward with the Lord or something like that. But generally, you're not getting shot for it or arrested uh, or so forth. Now, that is happening in many parts of the world. And being faithful unto death is a major theme of the New Testament. Okay, and, and men, most Christians in history, if, or at least many, perhaps most, have had to face living in that kind of culture. The early Christians did until the Edict of Constantine in 313 AD, which made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire for the first time. Uh, it's also called the Edict of Milan or the Edict of Toleration, but Constantine legalized Christianity for the first time up until then, uh, like if you lived in Saudi Arabia today or many other parts of the world, if you profess Christ, you could be arrested, tried, and executed for that. Sometimes you might just get beaten or stoned to death. You might not get a trial. You would generally get a trial uh, if you're a Roman citizen or perhaps a mock trial. So John Mark twice uh, runs from the runs from the the field of mi the mission field, and is actually uh, therefore in a in a situation where he needs to be to go through a process to be restored to Christ, to be restored to full 
uh, fellowship with the church, full communion with the church, and uh, to the call of God on his life. And like, uh, one thing I want you to learn is the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. And uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of look at this, that there's this idea in America today. If you ask anyone to share your testi- their testimony, everyone is fine with a testimony that sounds something like this. Before I was a Christian, I was, and you could do anything, chainsaw, murder, homosexual, uh, you know, drug dealer, uh, whatever you want to put in, people are like, that's cool. Jesus saved you from, I was a religious hypocrite, self-righteous. I went to church all the time for all the wrong reasons. Any, any dark and despicable thing, people are like, okay, I, can get, I get it. I, you know. But then there's this idea that, and then Christ came into my life, and it's just been all godliness and righteousness since then. My problem with that is I don't know too many people who actually that's their real testimony. <laughs> uh, most people ha- have a lot of falling and a lot of sinfulness and a lot of stumbling and a lot of character problems after they come to Christ. And they have to go through a process of sanctification to, uh, to, to mature. And so their real testimony should be, I came to Christ and then... Man, some of, you know, uh, I'll be honest with you, some of my worst sins uh, were after I was a Christian, (laughs) Uh, especially some of the most costly ones. And in fact, becoming a Christian opened up whole new cans of worms for me. Uh, Because before I was a Christian, for instance, I had no self-confidence. As I like to joke when I was a wrestler, I always tell people that I, when you're shaking hands at the beginning of the match, I I lack self-confidence so much that I was in my heart saying, gee, couldn't we just talk this over? <laughs> you know, uh, I'll buy you pizza if you don't beat me up too much. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and then uh, I remember a couple months after I was a Christian, I went to this uh, youth retreat that was like for college age Christians. And you know, of course I was 17 or almost 18. And, uh, you know, I came back from the weekend with two girlfriends and I, and I was like, and they didn't know each other, and they lived in different cities. So I, I kept the two girlfriends going for a while. Then I thought, what's wrong with this picture? But I, had, I wouldn't have even had the confidence to meet a girl or date a girl before I was a Christian. So the truth of the matter is, is I needed some sanctification. I needed some maturation. Does that make sense? And what I want you to see in John Mark's life is that oftentimes people who show the true signs of conversion will will have some sanctification issues to get through to to attain the call of God in their life and become a vessel that is, as Paul talks about, becoming a vessel that's fit or that's and useful to the master. So um, that's, you know, Matthew, if you look at it, it's all about God could use you no matter what your background is. Matthew was the most despicable thing in the world, a tax collector, and God used him to write the love letter to Israel, the most important books from, a, from, an Israel, from someone who's born of biological Israel, who's not been become re- true Israel, a true Jew by faith in Christ. There is no more important address to send them to than the book of Matthew. And there's a reason why Matthew is the first of the Gospels. And the proper place to start with your understanding of the Bible. And Matthew is uh, is an amazing story. 
But John Mark is a guy who, uh, as a young man, because his mother was a follower of Christ, he was present in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest Jesus. And uh, he flubbed up over the first 15 years of his Christian walk, or the first 15 years after the resurrection. Anyway, so, and yet God eventually restored him, as the New Testament clearly recall says, and as Paul clearly endorses his ministry later, and so much so that Peter asked him to write his gospel that he had, that he had taught John Mark for years and years and years through their association together. And that's, so you see, there's two kind of different things here. Um, you know, I, I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian who, uh, who is struggling, study carefully what, uh, say, a systematic theology class or would t teach about conversion. Make sure that your conversion and calling is right, true, and clear. But if it is, understand that God who started a good work in you, can complete it no matter what the obstacles are. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it, and the word really means uh, mature it, uh, make it whole till, uh, until the day of Christ Jesus. God can, can take even your troubles after you became a Christian, and by his grace, he can be greater than them. Now, part of that is coming to a place where you realize that you're not greater than them, and you use his grace as a means to, to, to see the life of Christ birthed into, your, into your, whatever issue you're facing. So I hope that, that uh, is um, clear to you. Um, I think one of the things you have to do is, is and I really want to endorse our systematic theology class that we're going to be running again come this January, on that line, and we're going to start signing people up and getting notebooks out to people and different things. And there's probably a few people who are such young Christians who are just reading the Bible for their first time who shouldn't take it uh, yet, but there are a lot of you should. And uh, one of the great benefits of understanding theology in a systematic way is to think through a lot of biblical issues more clearly. And there, there, is an, it, there are issues with the way the gospel is being presented in America today and whether or not uh, people are converted. I have quite a few of you who have helped me work with, with people who are coming to Christ or on the fringes of our ministry. And, and I've, some of you will come back and scratch your head. I, I'm not sure if this person's a Christian or not. And, you know, and I, and I just say, well, welcome to my world. That's one of the big issues of our day is the way the gospel is being presented, the way it's being lived out. Uh, in our culture today, there are lots and lots of people who go to church regularly, who read their Bibles, who teach Bible studies, who have not been converted in any biblical sense of the word. On the other hand, there are lots and lots of people that are converted who are not showing much fruit. And one of the things, if you want to become effective in ministry, one of the things you have to walk with people in a loving, guiding relationship in, as, as you figure that out. And understanding the signs of conversion uh, versus the signs of a lack of sanctification and, ed and biblical education is a very, very important part of doing any kind of effective ministry. 
it is very common today to walk with people five to ten years just to see them start bearing the kind of fruit you would expect a, pe- a person to bear fruit in their first few months of being a Christian. And uh, you really need to know the difference. And John Mark is a, is a, is a great contrast to, to, to Peter. Do you understand how uh, what I'm talking about when I say we have this way of doing testimonies? Uh, we have a, you know, it's perfectly acceptable to do a testimony that says, I was this terrible sinner, then I became a Christian. And <laughs> after that, it's, you know, but most people that I've worked with, most of you sitting in these pews, I, I happen to know better <laughs> because you've been honest enough that I know that then you, I, you became a Christian and your progress and sanctification, instead of looking like this, like this 22 degrees or even four degrees uphill constant slope has been more or less up down over back you know turn left go the wrong way six miles here after correction course uh you know and so forth and uh i wish people could see this on the tape but uh so i I want you to understand that point from the beginning today i need to move on hopefully i got that um Clear. Let me give you a couple quick biographical facts about John Mark for that are clear in the New Testament. First, Mark's mother, as we already talked about, was a follower of Christ during Christ's earthly ministry, and she was prominent in the church in the book of Acts. The prayer meeting in Acts 12, 12 happens at her house, the one that Peter was in jail. You remember when Peter was in jail, and it says they were all praying that he would be released, and the angel woke him up, and he was in such deep sleep that after the, it says the angel struck him in the side and walked him out and the angel opened the gate and he walked all the way to the other side of the gate before he, then he says, gee, I realize now I'm not dreaming. (laughs) I mean, if you were going to be executed the next morning, do you think you would be trusting in God so much that you're that deep asleep that, you you know, that an angel has to punch you in the side, walk you through, open the gate. And you, after you've walked about a hundred yards and chains have been taken off of you, which is a little bit noisy and and a little bit painful and so forth. Then you finally realize like, wow, I'm actually awake. This isn't a dream. <laughs> That's some deep sleep. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, then I love how he knocks on the door and they're all praying that he'd be released. But the servant girl, I think her name is Rhoda, uh, couldn't, couldn't believe that it was Peter. So she left him at the gate and ran in and told everyone because she couldn't believe it. Uh, that's prayer with faith and power. Uh, like anybody ever done that? Like when you're praying in faith and power and, and God actually answers your prayer and you're like more surprised than anyone else. Uh, I've had that experience many a time. Like, oh my God, God actually did what we were praying for. I wasn't actually thinking that I was, I wasn't praying in much faith, you know? And, uh, so, uh, I love how also Peter takes Jesus' advice and he keeps knocking, knock and keep knocking, ask and keep asking, Jesus said. So the Greek means to keep knocking. <laughs> so it says that Peter kept knocking. <laughs> All right, so that whole, that whole scene that I just described is, happens at John Mark's mother's house. Also, John Mark's cousin is Barnabas, as uh, Colossians 4.10 clearly tells us. And that plays into the fact that after John Mark's fall, uh, when it's time for Paul and Barnabas to go on what people call their second missionary journey, which should really be called the second apostolic journey, I guess, um, as they're about to go on the second apostolic journey, they disagree about whether John Mark's restored enough to go with them. 
And Barnabas, his, uh, it, the, the New Testament doesn't say this specifically, but it seems to imply that perhaps his judgment was clouded by the fact that John Mark was his cousin. Ah, uh, yeah, he's my cousin. I've known him since he kid. Don't worry. And, and Paul's like, no, 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 no. He hasn't gone through enough of a restoration process to, to be doing this again yet. And then uh, the last thing I want you to know biographically before we're going to go through as much of John Mark's life as we can in the remaining 20, 18 minutes is uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane, where we first encounter John Mark, to his writing of the Gospel of Peter, he is a, he, first of all, he knew Christ firsthand, but he wasn't uh, one of the core disciples or whatever. He had some experiences with Christ firsthand. He fled in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, when the Romans and the, and the chief priest soldiers came to arrest Christ. Uh, and then for the rest of his life, he's associated as a disciple or as a teammate, a helper of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. If you're going to be like a disciple of three different guys over the years and, and be their helper, that's a pretty good list of who to, who to uh, be discipled and, and taught by. For a season of his life, he's following Paul. For another season of his life, he's following Barnabas. But for a great deal of his life, he's following Peter. And in each case, he's not an apostle, but he's a part of their apostolic team. So that's a pretty good team to be on, I'd say. Three, he was on three very good teams. So let's go through the life of John Mark. Flip over, and uh, and we want to. Uh, the New Testament gives us 33 to 36 years of John Mark's life. He, uh, but the main lesson is he's a fallen leader restored by a biblical process to leadership, and he becomes the New Testament pattern for how to restore fallen leaders. I want to say one more thing before we get into this. This is a crucial issue of our day. There's a number of reasons I wish I could get into that have to do, again, with the changes in Christianity after the Civil War with the rise of evangelicalism, where we are at an unprecedented level of leaders who are called, anointed, and fruitful of God falling into serious financial sins, sexual sins, and other kinds of sins. It has a lot to do with the nature of how we look at the church, how we look at leadership, uh, how uh, the authority of the church, uh, in most cases, it has degenerated to the charisma of the personal leader of that church. And so the, the big guys with the big names who are big self-promoters have big churches. And it has a lot to do with the loss of plurality of leadership, servant leadership, liturgy. Liturgy, as C.S. Lewis clearly argues, takes uh, some of the emphasis off of the, the ministers and puts it where it belongs on the history of the church and the, and the great tradition uh, that we're following in Christ and, and uh, that we stand on the backs of giants and, it's, and we're, we're just little peons and little pawns in a great cosmic battle, uh, important to God. But... Um, it, you know, just the whole radical individualism thing. There's a lot of reasons I could go into why we, but we have an unprecedented number of people who are truly born again, who truly are studied, who truly are anointed, who uh, bear some to, to a lot of fruit, who fall into serious sins. And so, frankly, uh, if I, I'm hoping someday to do a doctorate, uh, and I'm hoping, if I do, to write my dissertation on John Mark, because what we have today is two big mistakes that come out of a lack of studying these things. 
One, we have the uh, uh, shoot, you know, Christians shoot their wounded syndrome. There have been a few armies in history, actually sad to say, who because of how difficult it was medically to transport uh, the wounded back, back with them as they retreated or as they moved on, there have been armies that kill their wounded. But generally, anybody with any common sense know that's kind of an abomination. And, uh, you know, one of the great uh, tragedies of our own, uh, our own national history is that uh, possibly in Korea, definitely in Vietnam, for the first time in American history, we left many of our soldiers behind. As, as captives of war. And today we have the same situation in the church in mass. The most, most Christians are, are spiritual POWs. And we have this thing where when someone falls, uh, we basically abandon them for the rest of their life. Most people, because of how much the church is relying on the personal character and charisma of individuals, pastors, instead of more biblically sound things that I can't really get into any more than that. We've talked a little bit about it. Uh, we have a situation where most people who fall can actually never be restored to any significant portion of the ministry they had before, which is tragic and a tragic loss. John Mark did his greatest things after his mess-ups. But the other, so that's a problem. We shoot our wounded, and we can never trust them again. But the second problem we have is rather than have a process of restoration that involves community and accountability, we are too quick to restore in the name of grace people who haven't really made restitution, done renunciation, and followed a biblical process. Now, I'm not going to get into specific issues, but there's been some of that even in recent history. Some of the most famous ones go back to the late 1980s and early 90s where uh, major international figures, you know, sinned in big ways and then cried in front of their church and said, I'm sorry, and uh, continued their ministry when their own and, and quit their denomination when their denomination said you need to stay step apart from ministry and leadership for a few years to be restored, which the church had always done historically. So now we have this syndrome. We have there's uh, there's major guys who I could name, who probably really are called of God and probably really are converted, but because of the complete spiritual confusion out there, have fallen into massive sins. Said, "Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, <laughs> and sorry I killed your brother, and uh, you know stole the church money and committed adultery, but I really didn't mean it. I'll do better the next time." And they go right back into the ministry. Now, when somebody walks away from the counsel that's given them, when they fall into problems and so forth, I myself have stepped away from ministry for a period of two or three years to 10 or so years, 12 years, twice in my Christian walk. In, uh, in my case, it was more voluntary, but, but with the counsel of brothers and so forth, uh, you know, uh, the, the second mistake we make is not having a full, complete process. 
Now, I only got 10, 12 minutes, about 13 minutes left. So let's see if we can, how much of John Mark's life we can get through to kind of illustrate. Do you see the two extremes? And the real answer is there's biblical tried and true reasons that involve complete confession. You have to doubt someone's repentance who only confesses after they're caught and the uh, evidence starts to pile up. That happens all the time in our world, in politics, sports, and the, and the ministry. Secondly, repentance, which means to turn from things and toward God and bear fruit in keeping with your repentance, renunciation, making restitution. You know, recently there was a big-name leader that fell and committed adultery and made plans to divorce his wife and followed through the plans and so forth, and then they're restoring him as soon as he's remarried. But, what you know, and I thought, yeah, but he still trashed his wife's life, and he's not done anything about it. So I hope, I hope you get the, what I'm getting at. And John Mark, uh, study it for yourself. I've given you all the scriptures here. If we run out of time, I hope you'll understand that um, real Christians born again in love with God do stumble and do fall. And if they go through the full process God wants them to go through to get the, any uh, the unrighteous things out of their spirits, such as selfish ambition, making a name for themselves, what have you, not walking in the light, God can restore you if you pay the full price. So let's see how much we can get into this. When we first encounter Mark in Mark 14, 51, he's a young man, was following him, uh, right, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled free from the linen sheet and escaped naked. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we, we don't know historically, can't too much time, uh, it either happened in 30 AD or 33 AD. We do not know for sure which year Christ died, but he, those are the only two that the Passover lines up with the right days for Pentecost and so forth. So um, right from that beginning, John Mark, the first time he's under pressure, uh, runs uh, for his life. And, and uh, as do the rest of the disciples. Now, the only reason the Gospel of Mark um, records it, and it doesn't record his name, which really is what, what points to him, is in, in the, the Gospel writers do not refer to themselves by name. We know from church history who each of the writers, but it doesn't say the Gospel according to Luke or Matthew or anything like that in any of the Gospels. And when they talk about themselves, like John, he refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. But he doesn't refer to himself by name in those kind of events. So, um, you know, secondly, in Acts 11, in 43 AD, so we're talking at least 10 to 13 years later, that is when the church, after Cornelius in Acts 10, finally begins to get it that the gospel is for all nations and for the Gentiles too. And a lot of Christians begin in Acts chapter 11 to share in mass with, with Gentiles instead of just Jews wherever they went. Up until then, for the first 10 years or so of the church history, when people went to various cities, they would go to the synagogue and share with the Jews and what was called the Hellenistic Jews. The, that is those non-Jewish by biological nationality people that had converted to Judaism and were therefore Jews by conversion. 
but they weren't going to the Gentiles. They first go to the Samaritans in Acts 8, and in Acts 10, they first go to the Gentiles. But by Acts 11, they're all going to the Gentiles, and especially a church that becomes the model church of the New Testament pops up in Antioch. That's what you can read about in Acts chapter 11. In Acts 12, uh, I already talked about that, where they, when Peter's arrested. So that is 12 years uh, to, uh, after the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll assume that the Garden of Gethsemane was 33 AD, but it's 12 or 15 years after um, um, after uh, uh, the Gethsemane, after the resurrection, after the Pentecost and the birth of the church, 12 years later, uh, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who's also called Mark. And Paul wants to... Uh, uh, so and, anyway, let's keep, keep going. So that's 12 years later. Acts 13, now Paul and his companions put out to the sea from Pamphus. I like this because of all the alliteration. Paul and his companions put out to the sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So John, he chickens out. Again. Now what's amazing about this is this is 15 years at minimum after he chickened out in the Garden of the Gethsemane, after all the disciples chickened out, but all the disciples after that and after Pentecost were so filled with the boldness and confidence and so forth that none of them were chickening out at the risk of their life. And Stephen and James of Peter, James, and John had already died for their faith. And Peter was prepared to when the angel woke him up in the middle of the night. So believe me, Christians are starting to have lots of chances to chicken out, and they're not doing so. But John, once again, shows that, see, grace works in your life in such a way that your love for God, your character, things of this kind of uh, nature, they work into your life permanently. You know, there's, there's character things. I always know who's not studying as much as people who are studying. I always know who's going to be late, who's going to be on time. I always know uh, who's going to do this and that and so forth because your character becomes your behavior, which becomes your destiny. And so grace actually begins to change your character. And one of the ways that grace changed the character of the disciples after Pentecost was they were bold even to the point of death. But 15 years later, John Mark still has a deep-seated problem in his character. And I want you to take some encouragement from that because that happens to Christians. In fact, it happens to Christians who have like 80 or 90% of the areas of their life. They're like, oh my gosh, this guy is such a faithful, godly, wonderful Christian. And yet they have this one area that I'm like, oh my God, if you could just overcome being such a sluggard or, or whatever the deep issue is. Uh, prideful, selfish, ambitious, or whatever, God, uh, eventually you're going to have to go through whatever it takes, the school of failure or whatever. God's going to have to cause you to lose your job or lose your wife or or whatever he's going to have to do. But somehow God's going to have to get at the root of that deep-seated character issue. And what happens with John Mark is he has this deep-seated character fear of man still. And uh, I call it the manifestation principle. The reason I'm, I'm often very excited about new Christians and their calling and their potential. But, you know, the reason you don't lay hands on a new convert is because uh, 
they're, you know, they're just getting started, and there's a thing called the manifestation principle. Eventually, whatever the problems are will show themselves over time if you're in Christian community instead of a megachurch where you can hide them forever. And that's why people who really want to be all they can be in Christ take the risk of being embarrassed and, and, and everything else and put themselves in the context of not only a pastoral relationship, but other brothers and sisters who can notice their character flaws and can say, I really don't think you should go this route. I really think you're going the wrong way. But in John Mark's case, you know, Paul and Barnabas were trying to tell him, you shouldn't chicken out. Remember, you did this back in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is 15 years later. We, we have the power of the Holy Spirit now. We have that confidence. Don't run for the hills. But guess what? They probably sat down, had meetings with him, and he said, I'm, I'm sorry, but guys, I'm going back to Antioch. I'm out of here. What you're doing here is too dangerous. And we've all done that with other issues. I don't care what everyone else is saying. I'm doing what I want to do. In this case, I'm, he wanted to t play it safe. He didn't have faith to uh, keep going. Now, that's very important. Now, and that's during the first apostolic journey. During the second apostolic journey in Acts 15, uh, it goes like this. And after some days, Paul and Barnabas said, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Let's go back and visit the churches and teach and minister and disciple. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take him with them, one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them in the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, listen to this, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, that by, was commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord is a huge deal. We actually know from church history that Barnabas planted more churches than Paul after that point. However, his churches didn't last long, and the Holy Spirit didn't choose to have his churches be the model uh, that Paul's churches became. And he, the Holy Spirit didn't choose Luke to follow with Barnabas. He followed with, with Paul because the brothers agreed with Paul. And the truth is, John Mark could be restored, but he wasn't ready yet. Notice the timing, because I'm putting I put the dates there. This is uh, three years after his his he had chickened out. That you know, we are so willing to rush people back into ministry three months later, six months later. I would encourage you when you've had a significant departure and so forth, build your character, study, uh, and talk, have an accountability team, walk through a process that may take some years, depending on the nature of the problem. What in the the higher level of ministry you're at, the more time it's going to take to be to be restored. But don't fall into any either of the errors that you can't be restored. The gifts and call of God are irrevocable, and God, the Holy Spirit, is calling to you, you are my son, you are my daughter. The very things I put in your heart at the beginning of your Christian life is what I'm still calling you to do. 
at your most radical moments when if you'd have been thinking better, you wouldn't have responded to the altar call and said, oh, yeah, I want to, you know, when the guy says, stand up if you want to be used of God to do, pay any price. To, and, you're, and you're like, don't, don't do, like, don't do, don't sign up for those things. <laughs> and uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, Chase, whatever you thought about God's call in your life, in your most radical, intimate times with God, if you ever stop chasing that with your whole being and your whole disciplines and your study habits and your camaraderie, then you are dead and you will live a miserable life after that. You'll go to heaven, I suppose, but that's not the point. Many are called, but few are chosen. Keep chasing the great things God put in your heart from the beginning and do the studying and build the disciplines and, and let him rip out the, the character flaws and everything. And just because you fell at some point doesn't mean that there's not a better point down the road. Does that make sense? So we're out of time, but I, Colossians 4, 62 AD, 11 years later, Paul specifically recommends that they listen to John Mark, that they receive John Mark, and John Mark is now a part of Paul's team again. Now, we don't know all that transpired during those 11 years, but I want to say that's a big problem. America's in the instant coffee, which is gross, instant flake mashed potatoes, which is an abomination, and, uh, you know, uh, we, we want instant everything, and uh, God's processes are slow. So uh, I want to encourage you. Here's the takeaways. I'm um, past my time, but here's the takeaways. Gifts and call of God are irrevocable. If you are in Christian community, restore the weak and the fallen. Galatians 6.1 says, if anyone's caught in a transgression, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. People who are godly always have hope and always have hope for people. Uh, God delights in using your weakest area through the entering into the death of Christ to become his long-term strength. Understand the differences, as we talked about earlier, between conversion and sanctification. Study the five vital signs of life that I do, or Grudem's same five vital signs in his systematic theology. Uh, read book, books about today's gospel. And understand today's Christian worldly culture, where we're, we're, you know, we're compromised and we're complacent and we're, and we're not very studied and we're not very zealous. Understand that when people, you know, that people are living sub-biblical lives when they begin to intersect your life, and to call them up to a more biblical standard is going to be a journey. It's not going to happen overnight. Be more realistic when you about your testimony. Your testimony is, I got saved. And uh, God began to change my heart and gave me a... When, when you get converted, you get a heart that wants to know God, that wants to please God, that wants to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus and become like him. But you, that behavior of that doesn't come out all the time right away. And uh, so understand the, pro, the differences between conversion and sanctification. And, and if you're working with somebody who needs to be converted, keep the gospel in front of them. Uh, if you're uh, if you're working with someone who needs sanctification, keep the gospel in front of them. Amen.